0: Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Jim Mason. He is an environmentalist, a lawyer, author, and animal rights activist. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. yes welcome to the podcast i have jim mason he is a lawyer an animal activist an environmentalist and an author and i got the signed copy of the book that he sent me unnatural order welcome so uh this is actually the second time what's been going on i think the last time was it like four or five months ago we uh we talked about the book and we talked about some politics stuff what's new
1: Right. I think so.
0: What's been going on? What's new?
1: Well, <laughs> if you follow the news, it's like uh, unbelievable what's happening in our Congress. It's almost like uh, Alice in Wonderland up there. Like uh, You're talking,
0: you talking about what's happening in Washington or where you are? Yeah. Is it Missouri? Yeah. You're in Missouri though, right?
1: Yeah, I'm in Missouri, a red state. Yeah, I'm talking generally about uh, Trumpism and Christian nationalism and the craziness. like I saw the thing today uh, in the news that some guy at the CPAC conference posted about ending democracy and replacing it with... uh, I, I suppose uh some christian theocracy so uh that's set, uh, troubling to me because i don't want to live in a in a, a christian na- nationalist um, dictatorship
0: yeah it definitely seems like the um the the right wing has been taken over by evangelicals you know the i guess the conservative uh party in our country, the Republicans, um, so-called conservative. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, they get votes by pretending to be religious, by being, you know, Christian nationalists, by being, um, you know, radical with their views. I just saw in Virginia um, that now what, frozen embryos or frozen sperm or something like that, they're now considering uh, a child. So uh, someone's, someone's, uh, Alabama, is that Alabama?
1: Alabama Supreme That's right.
0: That's right. You're right. Yeah, Alabama. I'm yeah. Sorry.
1: Imagine that. Imagine that, and, you know, in 2024. It's like, yeah. Like, uh, uh,
0: yeah, we're going backwards board. in time. Someone someone uh, made a quip, though. I thought that was pretty funny. They said that they were going to masturbate and put it in a vial and freeze it and then claim those as dependents on their taxes.
1: So that there you go. There's some lawyering going on. I think they were just, yeah, to,
0: no, it's, but a, not, it's, it's not a funny matter because, uh, yeah, the, the, the ridiculous, um, you know, our lives are at stake and the freedoms of reproductive freedoms of women are at stake. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to joke about it because these people and their views are absolutely yeah. ridiculous, but it definitely seems like we're going backward in time, doesn't it?
1: Well, the reason why it's so troubling and,
0: and, um, crazy is that,
1: uh, the right wing, the conservative uh, politics, were always opposed to any kind of government control. And uh, they're talking about things now where the government would, would uh, regulate our lives, our, our sex lives, our families. Um, it's it's like, a, <laughs> I think they need to re-examine their principles and, and uh, decide what they really stand for because it sounds so like... They're opposed to the very things they used to stand for. And uh then of course they're so chummy with Russia, our historic uh enemy in uh world politics. So uh, it's just so crazy I can I can hardly stand it.
0: Um uh, <clears throat> yeah, Chomsky actually discusses it. He talks about the two party system. Uh, it's really a one-party state. Moderate Republicans. Um, you know, we have the business party with two factions. But now that Chomsky, he kind of says that uh, the Republicans are now off of the off of the. Um, you know, they're off of the scale. They are no longer even pretended to resemble a parliamentary party. Um, they are not conservatives. They're certainly not classical conservatives, um, whatever yes. the neoconservative uh, means. But yeah, they are. They are nationalists, they are reactionaries, and they um, support authoritarianism in a very powerful state. Of course, they want to uh, you know, expand the state's ability to carry out violence and use force. They continue to want to expand the police. They continue to want to expand mass incarceration, which we already lead the world in. They want more prisons. They're okay, it seems like, with private prisons. Of course, they are big funders both parties are of the military industrial con uh, complex so um yeah i don't think the republicans have any principles other than enriching um you know the already rich and powerful uh cutting taxes on the rich which is essentially class warfare no economist thinks that that's a good idea um but yeah outside of slashing taxes on the rich they are reactionaries they want to violent state a powerful state but what they want to do is to limit the state's ability to help um you know working class and poor people and they do that by uh you know decreasing school funding by decreasing funding to medicare medicaid any social programs that might help um you know normal people they seem like they want to cut but of course we have to maintain the state's ability to carry out violence and use force so expand the police expand the military um you know and it seems like we also have two parties of war. Unfortunately, my issue, and I just had a Green Party on last night, I, I liked what the Green Party platform stands for. I'm not a Green, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an anarchist, so I don't really like any political party. But yeah, when given the choice between the two the, the, the two business parties in this country, yeah, I definitely prefer the Greens and in their, in their platform. But I really don't see much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans other than... You know, the, the Republicans pretend to be religious so they can pick up the, I don't know, 30% or, or, or so of the evangelical vote in this country that, uh, you know, vote pretty, pretty, um, pretty much in unison and they vote, um, you know, in large numbers. So the Republicans, they found out that, uh, you know, they can continue to enrich their wealthy constituency and they can pick up at least 30% or so of the vote by pretending to be religious.
1: Yeah, it's a very troubling time. Um and uh I, I'm puzzled uh, when I think about it how fast, how rapidly this has come on. I'm just thinking like uh five or ten years ago, we could not have imagined that this kind of stuff would be so popular. You know, it's it scares me enough that people people are saying these things and and um, advocating these policies, but uh the second that, the most scary thing is it's so popular across this country. we got a good third of the country, maybe more, that actually follows this nonsense. That's pretty troubling.
0: And I think these are the people that get their news from, like, Facebook and uh, news talk radio. So these are typically not people that are reading the New York Times or the the Washington Post or anything like that. They're getting, um, you know, basically political news from the Internet and from talk shows.
1: Well, if you live in rural America, about the only radio station you're going to get is either a Christian music station or a right-wing talk station. And uh, those voices tend to be really dominant across the country. We don't have, you know, the Rush Limbaugh clones are all over the place and they have the airwaves. If I drive around in rural Missouri and, and have the radio on, a. Am or F. N. That's what I'm going to
0: hear. These uh, call-in talk shows, that they're all right wingers. What do you think about uh, fascism? Do you remember, you know, fascism uh, growing up? I do not. You know, I just you know kind of learned about it in in history books and whatnot. But uh, do you see some similarities with fascism? You know, kind of the corporate state nexus, nexus I mean, religious extremism, nationalism militarism, I mean, all these things, um, you know, seemingly the right wing in America seem to support. And these are all kind of symptoms of fascism, right?
1: I, I, uh, I don't have any uh, personal experience, even though I was born. I was born in 1940, which is a year or two before World War II broke out. And uh, by the time of the of the peace, the uh, Victory in Europe Day, nineteen forty-five, you know, I was barely able to read and write. So I didn't have any personal memories of that time. The closest I think it came to it in my personal experience was the Nixon years when we had so many right wingers in power and and we were all so chauvinistic and patriotic and we were gonna exterminate communism in Asia and Nixon uh, Nixon cost me a job. I was a legal services lawyer in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was a uh, program to provide lawyers for uh, uh, people who couldn't afford lawyers. For the uh, we used to call them poor people, but what's what's the woke term for under underpaid people now? I, I can't I can't recall it. But anyway, so. We were lawyers for people that qualified for welfare and other programs. So when Nixon came to power, he killed this program because it was a program uh, uh, crafted by Lyndon Baines Johnson. It was a product of Johnson's war on poverty, a great society. So our program was killed when Nixon came to power. He just uh, basically, they, they quit funding the program. So, yeah, that was my closest brush with right-wing fascism.
0: So um, Chomsky even mentioned that I, of course, bring him up a lot because he's my favorite philosopher and political commentator. And, uh, you know, he's written about history that he's lived through that I have not. So I like his take on things. But he actually calls Nixon the last um, he calls Nixon the last uh, New Deal president, the last liberal president. I guess some of his social policies were at least a lot farther left than, you know, let's say Clinton. Uh, Obama and Biden. So, I mean, you know, c- the comparison, um, between, you know, some of these, uh, so-called Democrats now, um, it seems like there's definitely been a lot of, uh, right-wing creep from both parties here, uh, in the country. But, um, you know, if you look at like Eisenhower, right, Eisenhower was very, um, you know, very liberal compared to, I think, Biden today. I mean, he was in favor of most of the New Deal. He didn't want to expand, um, or he wanted to expand Medicare and uh, Social Security and stuff like that. He didn't. He didn't touch it. He didn't uh, attack it. He didn't want to cut it. Uh, and then lots of public works projects, like the, the highway system. Yeah. It's a, it was a uh, you know uh, built under the yeah. guise of defense after World War II. This was a this was an Eisenhower program. Um, you know, how do you see the Republican party over the last 50 or 60 years? Um, it seems like it's pretty far, far, far to the right now. And, and it seems like all they are, they don't have any principles, like you said. I mean, you have to, they kind of have to check what their principles are. What are they exactly? You know, they claim to be this party of, uh, small government and, uh, you know, want to push back against the state and, and controls and whatnot, but they are certainly an authoritarian party. Uh, I mean, even look at the, um, the Patriot Act, I mean, the, the surveillance, uh, program put forth by George W. Bush that was expanded by Obama. I mean, this is not conservative. This is invasion of privacy. This is not, you know, conservation of civil rights and human rights. This is, you know, uh, this is a rollback on civil rights and human rights.
1: Well, it was uh, both Eisenhower and Nixon actually proposed uh, public, uh, public funded health care, socialized medicine of a kind. Of course, they didn't call it that back then, but, They're really ahead of the curve on, uh, you know, helping people afford medical, adequate medical care. And they won't touch that anymore.
0: But see, the problem is neither will the Democrats. I mean, you don't have anyone in the Democratic Party. I I had, um, you know, again, a Green Party candidate on last night. He ran for uh, Senate in in Pennsylvania against Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. Of course, he didn't win or even have um, a strong showing. Uh, but he wanted to get the message out there that there is an alternative. Um, we just have to, you know, gain traction and whatnot. And again, I'm not a green. Uh, I am an anarchist. I don't really like political parties, but what I, what I do like is social programs that help working class and poor people. You know, public works projects, social safety nets in our society. And in fact, I want to overthrow capitalism. That's a long term goal. But uh, you know, my my, my goal was, um, you know, to help working class and poor people. I, I like working class politics. But uh, again, you know, Obamacare—it was little more than a giveaway to the private insurance industry. I mean, it's very expensive. uh, Obamacare was uh, was
1: uh, an experiment that was uh, invented by was it the Heritage Society, a right wing think tank, came up with the plan that Romney installed
0: in Massachusetts. Right. Yeah, in Massachusetts, exactly.
1: Yeah, but it was the product of, uh, I think it was the Heritage uh, Institute, which uh, is a right-wing think tank. So they invented this kind of publicly funded uh, uh, healthcare to stave off uh, real, genuine, socialized medicine, because they knew if they could rope in the insurance companies to get in on the gravy train, they could get that installed and... and, uh, defeat the, 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 uh, the growing momentum in favor of some kind of uh, socialized medicine and uh, government-funded government healthcare. And I'm, a, I'm actually a recipient of government-funded healthcare. In fact, uh, what's today? Thursday, just yesterday, I was at the Veterans Administration Medical Clinic, which is only about an hour away from me. And uh, what it is, it's a brand new building, state-of-the-art equipment, fully staffed. It's a primary care facility. I go there for semi-annual checkups and medication. And if something bad develops, they send me to the Central Hospital, which is affiliated with the University of Missouri School of Medicine. Uh, So, you know, I've got, I'm lucky being a veteran, that I have a, 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 a functioning and for me, a desirable Kind of socialized medicine, healthcare, government funded, and it works, and
0: I like it. Yeah, I think that there's. People aren't even aware of these things. Um, I think the VA system is a great system. I think it should be expanded to include everyone, not just vets, although I think that the vets, you know, they deserve it, and they deserve to be taken care of. Uh, there's a lot of homelessness in the veteran population, suicide in the veteran population. So I think that the, the vets get benefits, but they are certainly not adequate. I think they need to be expanded. But, again, I would expand uh, healthcare services to everyone. So when you talk about, like, universal healthcare. There's a lot of different ways you can go, and these aren't even discussed in the mainstream by the media or by either political party. But what you get is, yeah. you know, you could have a single payer. You know, you could expand it, call it whatever Medicare for All. Um, you know, where you have a single payer, and you still go to your private healthcare clinic. Maybe it's owned by a doctor. Maybe it's owned by a corporation. Maybe it's a co-op. Maybe it's owned by the city or a university. Who knows? But it could be owned by lots of different. Um, you know, it it, it could be structured in lots of different ways, but what I like is the NHS in um, you know in Europe and Britain, uh, and it is a uh, it's a government facility, it's a public facility. Um, you go there. Uh, I don't think you get a bill. You get treatment. You get pretty good treatment. I I, I understand, and I think the same could be in the VA, and and, and the VA can be expanded to um, to take care of um, you know rural areas, city areas, um, middle class you know patients, poor patients. Um, and we could still have, if we wanted to, which I, I don't even know if we need that. But like, you know, maybe we could still have private clinics and, and whatnot for maybe I don't know, richer people that can afford them. I guess that so you can have the choice. Um, you know, but I think, you know, I think healthcare is a human right, and I think everyone should have the option of really good care really good uh, access and and that sort of thing. So uh, I think Medicare for all is a good idea, but I like, you know, public clinics. I like clinics where people can go, they don't get a bill, they don't necessarily need insurance or anything like that. You just show up, uh, you you get your care. And I, I would be open to even... Having these clinics treat non-citizens, maybe people that get here and they get injured on vacation or they're traveling or maybe they're in a um, you know an illegal immigrant or, or something along those lines. Um, I'm fine with that. Who cares? We, we have the wealth. We have the resources. We can treat these people. So I'm in favor of not just Medicare for all, but I'm in favor of public institutions, um, you know, controlled democratically by, um, you know, whether it's the state, the federal state, the, the local state. The municipality, the cities—I think that would be all a great thing, and it could be uh, on the model of the VA system. We could just, you know, try to expand it. The VA system is one of the only functioning uh, sectors of the uh, healthcare system in this country. We don't really have a healthcare system; we have a national scandal, uh, along with Medicare, which is operates at uh, a fraction of the cost of these high paid. Uh, of these ridiculously enormous healthcare health insurance bu- bureaucracies, you know, with layers and layers of management and and high paid executives and stuff, uh, the Medicare system runs at a fraction of the cost of these uh, these healthcare health insurance providers, which you know price gouge and you know have they have nothing to do whatsoever with um, outcomes or health whatsoever. They're just about making profit. They're kind of the middle guy that's taking a, a, a cut of. Of, of, of the services off the top. And of course, in the United States would pay more, I think more than two times um, per capita for healthcare than any other country in the world. I believe Cuba spends about 4%. Uh, per capita on health expenditures than we do here in the United States and about the same outcomes, a small country, a you know, small island nation that doesn't have, have even close to the number of resources and advantages we have here in the United States, yet they can do it. So, of course, we can do this in the United States, too. So I think Medicare for all, single payer, is a good start. But I would expand public institutions that provide health care to people directly, you know, owned and operated or controlled by the local city, state, or the, even the federal government, and we can do it a number of different ways. And of course, the VA too—it's uh, the only um, part of the healthcare network in the United States that can legally, um, you know, use the, the government's power to um, negotiate drug prices and get lower drug prices. And the VA, they pay much lower drug prices than um, you know private citizens through insurance. And that's because they use the power of the government, you know, and the influence of the government. We could use that, um, you know, in the entire country to negotiate. We pay some of the highest drug costs in the world as well. So we could use these clinics and negotiate uh, lower prices. And sure, we can still have some high-end Cadillac plans if the rich, whatever, they want to go and see some specialized doctor. I guess that's fine. Uh, but I think all people are entitled to health care, and I think good health care options. So I would expand um, public services and um, you know public facilities, as well as maybe we can start with a, a single-payer Medicare for all.
1: Um, let me tell you a couple of things where I like my um, care to be a clinic in Missouri. I should say uh, the VA medical system has gotten a lot of bad press over the years. Um, You know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, they talked about the terrible quality of care for veterans, but uh, somebody cleaned up their act pretty well because the the treatment I get is great. So, a couple of things I like. One is I can get a human on the phone. If If I have a question, or needs something, I can call this number and talk to somebody. Uh, within several minutes, I can talk to a nurse. And if she thinks uh, I need to uh, talk to the doctor, I'll talk to the doctor. You can't really do that in private uh, uh, healthcare, private medical practice. You, know, you you spend days trying to get a hold of a doctor. And the other thing is uh, uh, they keep track of the records over there. They've got everything on a computer. Uh, I don't have to fill out forms. I don't have to shuffle around a bunch of copies of stuff. If I go from the clinic to the hospital, uh, it's, it's all there. I don't get bounced around and have to fill out forms and go through, uh, jump through hoops every time I'm, I'm referred somewhere else. Like I had a, a couple of minor problems and I got referred from the uh, primary care clinic to the to the central hospital where I saw um, orthopedic surgeons and I don't know, several other specialists and uh, it was trouble free. I just went right in and saw the specialist and we, we uh, talked about it and they gave me this, and they gave me that medication and I'm out of there. But I had friends when they try to get a referral to a specialist, it's almost like they have to start from scratch, they have to jump through so many hoops they get to see that orthopedic surgeon or that, that eye doctor or whatever. But the uh, VA's got it all integrated, all integrated, and it's all in the computer system. So if they send me from the clinic to the specialist, the specialist sees the same sees the same records that everybody else would see. So it's much more efficient, much less hassle, fewer ho- hoops to jump through. It's really a, a good thing. While we're, ta- while we're talking about veterans, uh, I want- I wonder if your listeners would guess what kind of a veteran I am. Like, where was I in the armed forces? Have any idea? Did I ever tell you about this?
0: No, you haven't. Uh, I don't know. Were you? Let's see. So, I mean, I would say that's going be Vietnam. Is this Vietnam era?
1: No, no. I'm so old. That I was, I was already a veteran during the worst of the Vietnam War. I was already going to school on the GI Bill when the— uh, Vietnam War was raging at its worst. I was uh,
0: trained
1: to be a tank commander. I was trained to be a t- tank commander. Uh, that means that I was in charge of uh, five tanks and their crew. So I was in charge of 20 men on five tanks. And I'm proud to say, and luck- to say that I was lucky that I never had to go um, in a tank into combat, into any kind of shooting. I stayed on Army base in the United States the whole time and just played games with tanks. But uh, when I tell people today that I was a tank commander, they look at me like, (laughs) laugh at me like, you,
0: a tank commander? I did not expect this. Yeah, I didn't know you were a vet. I did not know you were a tank commander. This is all a surprise. I had not heard this on our first conversation, but, yeah, very surprising.
1: It seems incongruent
0: that a little astrumpy guy like me would be a
1: tank commander. But there I was, and. Fort Sill and Fort Knox and all over the place.
0: I am in healthcare. Let me just mention this and then I'm going to get back to the military stuff. Um, You know, I worked in big healthcare clinics. I've worked in small healthcare clinics. Uh, That is one um, definitely benefit though, of working within a a large healthcare network or facility like the VA, like university healthcare systems. You get specialists, you get uh, primary care nursing. I mean, literally any specialty within the healthcare arena um, all all of those providers are right there. They're looking at the same medical record. Yeah. You can you can yeah. order uh, consultations, services, um, prescriptions, all that kind of stuff. They they can look through it. You can see imaging diagnostic reports. So all that stuff is great. When I worked at smaller healthcare facilities, you know, trying to get imaging diagnostic tests, all that kind of stuff is very very challenging. And then of course you have to go through billing and. And insurance and pre-approval and all that oh, good stuff. If, if you go to a hospital in the United States, you might find an entire floor, you know, for accounting and billing. But if you go to Canada and other countries with a functioning health care system with a single-party payer uh, or, you know, with even um, government facilities, public facilities and whatnot – you know, you, you leave there, there's no bill. There's no billing department. Maybe they're down in the basement, one or two people on a computer, but that's about it here in the United States. Yeah, it's I like know. a whole wing of a hospital billing department.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's really inefficient. They have, uh, too many people on the payroll and not enough people actually uh, talking to patients. Yeah. Another anecdote about the VA, um, several months ago, I had a problem with a finger. I have a, uh, an abnormality that comes with old age, my finger won't straighten out. So Premier Care sent me to, uh, I don't know what kind of a specialist he was, but it was at the at the big hospital in Columbia, Missouri. And um, the guy seemed very friendly. He was an older man. He was uh, 60-some years old. And I'd like to chat with uh, people like that. You know, I, I'm an informal person. So I asked him, I said, how do you like uh, being a staff physician with the Veterans Administration. He said, I'd like it better than private practice. I'll tell you why. Because I love medicine. I love to practice medicine. And here, I'm allowed to have time, time to talk to my patients. When I was in private practice, you know, they were in and out in 30 seconds. Because you've got such a big overhead to cover. You have to run them in and out like, pardon the comparison, but like Pigs in the slaughterhouse, you know, it's just, yeah. you're just a piece of meat in a medical practice like that. But my doctor specialist uh, actually visited, uh, enjoyed sitting down and just actually
0: having a, a, a human uh, face-to-face talk with me. And I appreciated that. And yeah, that's that's a problem with a for-profit model, too, is, you know, there's not much money tied into prevention, you know, or a, a conversation on nutrition or getting good sleep or getting exercise, you know, we in, in the medical business and with high overhead, you got to, you got to um, pay your employees and you got to be able to pay your, your spacing and you got to get, you know, good reimbursement rates. You might have student loans, all this kind of stuff. So we're obsessed with, um, you know, reimbursement rates and paying for procedures, what procedures uh, give us a little bit more reimbursement, what's our, you know, what's our big juicy codes, if you will, and in, 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 inside the healthcare um, you know, uh, system. We're, we're always looking for you know what's what's the reimbursement. Where, where are we going to get more money? And unfortunately, again, there's not much for preventative medicine, good conversation, um, you know, lifestyle, holistic medicine, that kind of stuff. It's you know, give them a pill, get get them uh, an imaging consultation, uh, get them a medical device. Um, but yeah, sometimes people just need a conversation. They need to learn about the system, how it works, what their options are. But uh, you know, when you're seeing Patients every five minutes. Sometimes you don't get that kind of time, and I agree. That sounds like the, the VA is doing a lot of good stuff. If they are actually spending face time, one-on-one talking to patients, I think that's where the healthcare. Uh, I think that's where healthcare should begin.
1: Well, um, the other thing about private medicine is uh, they have a kind of an automatic tendency to want to talk you to sell you on a procedure that costs more money like uh one of the first times i went and with the problems with my hand with, with the finger thing uh the guy recommended surgery and i didn't know anything at the time i thought that was the only option and i found out since that there were non-surgical procedures but this guy knowing that i had insurance uh operated on my hands one at a time i don't know six weeks apart or something uh because that racked up the bill they had uh the surgeon's fee, uh, the the cost of the surgery uh, uh, facility, the the rooms, the staff. It was a much more expensive treatment for me.
0: And, uh, yeah, I mean, they might not even talk about the outcomes. I mean, (laughs) sometimes maybe just some conservative intervention, um, you know, might be even the same outcomes. That's what you have to kind of weigh. But uh, if if doctors are getting much more – you know, incentive reimbursement for procedures, you know, they might discount the, the conservative option when really that might be all you need. All right, so let's change gears, but I got one last question for you. What do you think the number one predicting factor is for whether or not a patient with back pain got a back surgery? What do you think the number one variable is? I didn't understand the question. So whether or not, Can what determines, what's what determines whether or not a patient with back pain Gets a uh, a back surgery. Is it uh, the severity of the issue? Is it the age of the patient? Is it uh, I don't know anything off the top of your head that you think would be likely to cause a patient with back pain to get a surgery? Um, I guess it depends
1: on insurance coverage that whoever's going to do. Yeah, that's definitely good one surgery.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely up there. The number one predicting factor was the number of. Back surgeons in a particular area code or zip code, okay. I guess. So, yeah, it has, uh-huh. it has nothing to do with outcomes or anything like that. The biggest factor was if there's a bunch of back surgeons in your area and you got back pain, you're more likely to get a back surgery. I guess that makes sense. But uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, the conservative route is uh, not practiced enough. We, we want to just get into, into these very um, expensive procedures. Let's change gears here, though. We do- definitely talked about the healthcare system for quite a long time you had mentioned your military background uh th- does the name pat tillman ring a bell does what the name pat tillman does that ring a bell remember uh pat tillman he was oh, the yeah yeah i know. it
1: was the, one of the wars in iraq uh
0: i think yeah, he was he in was afghanistan killed. but yeah it was uh it was after 9-11 at least where he was killed there was actually a good documentary that I saw it came out years ago. It was on, I think, Amazon Prime, um, and I watched it. But uh, there was a huge cover-up. I had, I had no idea until recently. Um, he was, you know, I guess a military hero, and uh, you know, he left a, a football career. He left behind millions of dollars to join uh, the army, the armed forces after nine eleven. Him and his brother, and then he was um, killed in Afghanistan um, by friendly fire. But there was a cover-up, uh, and right. there's a story right. they said, uh, and his family pursued it. Uh, that's the only reason the truth came out. There was a big cover-up, and initially the, it was like, oh, you know, his um, his squad was ambushed by 25 um, militants uh, of the Taliban, and uh, there, was, there was a firefight, and uh, unfortunately he was a hero, and, and he was killed. You know, what ended up happening was uh, there was – you know, this investigation, they're not sure if there were any uh, combatants. They're not sure if anyone from the Taliban. Really, what seemed to happen is, uh, you know, you had some trigger happy um, people in the platoon, and uh, a vehicle broke down. And, um, you know, long story short, um, Pat was dead, and there was this, and he was the only one that died, I believe. And there was this big, massive cover up. Uh, I think he received, him and his family received all these medals, and they wanted this military hero. Uh, so they came up with this elaborate story, and they um, they said that the you know went all the way to the top. Uh, I think the Secretary of Defense and maybe even George W. Bush had their hands in this because again they wanted yeah. a recruitment tool. They wanted a hero. Uh, what, what do you think about that though, and and all the I guess the stuff that happens maybe behind the scenes in the military? You know, they want they want the good story, they want propaganda, they want a hero. I just thought that that was kind of eye opening that uh, this kind of stuff happens at the highest level in government in our country, and we would have never even heard about it if his parents. Uh, I think his dad was a lawyer. I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, and his mom was very persistent. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why we actually got some answers. But if this was a nobody, you know, just some, you know, inner city youth or something like that, we would have never heard about it. But because he was a, of a person of prestige and fame and stuff, you know, we finally got some answers. But that, that's just, you know, that's kind of slimy, you know, that this cover-up stuff, these lies happen at the highest level of military. It went up to generals and commanders and all kinds of stuff.
1: Uh, my experience, uh, no- Military is uh, the chain of command ensures that the higher-ups never take any responsibility for anything. They always, just like, uh, they have a fall guy. And if you remember the Vietnam War, it was Lieutenant Cali when there was the My Lai Massacre um, where American soldiers shot a lot of innocent Vietnamese. And uh, because they had to have a villain, they, they picked out this little second lieutenant, Cali. As if he were the only bad actor. The trouble is uh, responsibility for for those kind of atrocities goes up and down the chain of command. But you don't catch any of the higher ranking uh, people, uh, you know, being punished, being identified. They're always blamed around someone else.
0: That's actually what happened in the Pat Tillman story, too. They blamed everything on some colonel that was retired, um, so nothing really happened. He was already out of the military. He would retired with honors and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's basically what they did. They pinned everything on this one sucker. I think again he was a colonel or something like that. And uh, they interviewed him and you know it pretty much said the same thing that I was the fall guy. You know, uh, you know, and, and you know he he he, took, he fell on the sword and that that kind of uh, thing. But uh, yeah, he said something along those lines on basically I was the fall guy and that's the way it goes. You know. Yeah. All right, let's get back. Let's get to your background a little bit more. Let's go back to a natural order. Um, uh, would you say that's your most passionate, um, what you're most passionately an advocate for uh, in your activism would be animal rights, environmentalism, um, that kind of stuff. And maybe you can talk about how you got started. I remember that on our first call, uh, you grew up on a farm and saw that the way, you know, animals were slaughtered. Yes. And, and ever since then, that's kind of, um, you know, it, it didn't make you feel very good. And that's kind of um, maybe what drew you into animal rights and activism and that kind of stuff.
1: Well, when I'm asked questions like this, to uh, try to explain my book An unnatural order. I've found that it's, it's more understandable if I tell you the history of how I came to write the book. Um, I'm probably most well-known for the book with Peter Singer, Animal Factories, which came out in 1980, which is like, you know, prehistory uh, <laughs> when it comes to animal farming. Now, animal agriculture and factory farming is all the rage, and everybody talks about it, and everybody takes credit for fighting it and exposing it, and the Internet is, like, uh, full of... Stuff exposing factory farming. Well, Singer and I were the first to expose it. He did it in 75, Animal Liberation, and we did it together and came out, a book came out in 1980. And we had uh, 40 or 50 black and white photographs in that book. And people had never seen the images of what it looks like inside a factory farm birds in cages, pigs in cages. Uh, it, it, it's horrible to look at. It's, it's, and it's, it's tiny horrible cages visuals. too, right?
0: It's very, very small cages. I've seen what well, they yeah. can't even stand up and turn Everything's around, crowded right? because
1: they're kept in confinement so that the more animals you can pack into a small space, which costs money, machinery, floors, walls, automatic feeders, that costs so much money. So you want to put as many animals in there as you can to cover the cost. So anyway, what I'm getting at is... When that book came out, I was on NBC's uh, morning talk show, morning show uh, today, and I showed slides, showed images of the factory farms. And I believe if, if anyone has better information, please let me know. That was the very first time that American audiences saw pictures of what factory farms looked like inside and out. And uh, we, we caused some flat for that because animal agribusiness did not like. La- like the fact that I was on the uh, highest-rated, biggest audience morning show, NBC's Today. This is this is before streaming, before cable, before internet. Back then, you had the three networks, and NBC had the biggest share with its Today Show. So after that, when it came out, and also that book got a lot of good reviews. We got reviews in some of the major national papers, daily papers. And I had an op-ed in the New York Times, and we got good reviews. We got a feature story in the Washington Post, and an interview on a Christian Science Monitor. It got a lot of coverage. It wasn't like a forgotten, ignored book. It got a lot of coverage. So what I'm getting at, in the wake of that book it came out, when all the press coverage and the interviews settled down, I uh, had time to think in the aftermath of studying uh, animal agriculture 20th century, where did all these animals come from? Where did cattle and pigs and sheep and goats and the usual barnyard animals, farmed animals, how did that happen? Where did they they come from? And uh, so still got really interested in the history of domestication, like how wild cattle came to be the domestic breeds of Angus and Hereford and Charlie and all the other beef breeds. And how the dairy breeds came to be, you know, Holsteins and Guernseys and Jerseys. Where did all of these domestic breeds of animals come from? So I read everything I could get my hands on. And I was fascinated as I did that to learn what an impact that it had the domestication of animals taking, that is taking them from the wild, from their native habitat, and confining them and shaping their lives through selective breeding and making them tame, docile, and uh, engineering their bodies for meat, milk, and eggs, and wool, and whatever other byproducts bio- we want. So I read everything I could get my hands on, and I'm still reading on that subject. And it turns out that the very first domestication of farm animals, well, the dog is the first animal to be domesticated. They think it goes back 15 or 20,000 years and the dog wasn't domesticated by us. Uh, Wolves basically became more familiar with the human um, nomadic group, hunter-gatherers, followed them around for scraps and over generations and generations a pack of wolves became a pack of dogs. But let's get back to farm animals. I found that the first barnyard animals to be domesticated or sheep and goats in what is now southern Turkey where Turkey borders with Syria uh, and uh, northern what's today Iraq, that area. So the mountain range um, slopes down, down into the Mesopotamian valleys of uh, where, where cereals, barley, and wheat were domesticated. And uh, we won't get into the details of how these animals came to be domesticated. That's the whole session in itself. Basically, they got familiar with wild herds and put out fodder for them in the wintertime and gained their trust until they could actually have physical control of some of the members. And then they learned to breed them. They learned to pick out a male, to breed with a female, and they kept them in confinement. So I read about that. Some thousands of years later, 2000, I think, cattle were domesticated. And then horses and pigs were sort of all over the place, they were all over Asia and Europe, uh, and they too probably followed a human settlement for scraps until they became tame enough to be confined by the human group. So uh, in the course of learning about this process of domestication and the creation of uh, domestic sheep, goats, cattle, pigs, and so forth, I realized what an impact that had on human culture i think it's almost common knowledge that what we call the agricultural revolution had a huge impact on human society and culture it really changed the world uh, we we lived in nature until about until around the time that we uh, started agriculture about 11,000 years ago and in starting agriculture what happened you know basically what happened is we learned to control natural processes. When we were hunter gatherers, we didn't control the wild nuts and berries and grains. We just knew where to find them. We didn't know how to control the sex lives of wild sheep and goats and cattle. We just knew where they were, kind of like the Native Americans knew where the buffalo were and then they picked off a few now and then. But when we became farmers, we learned to control the growth Of seeds and plants and cultivation begins. And that caused a whole lot of changes. It caused people to settle down, live in villages. Uh, They didn't have to go out and hunt and gather anymore. They learned to store products. They learned to create surpluses so that's the first time they had more foodstuffs than they needed. So basically it's the first form of wealth, having surpluses Surpluses became a form of wealth. Then they had trade goods. They had uh, byproducts, things to sell. In the case of animal agriculture, they had milk, then cheese and wool or fiber, and, of course, the meat and the horns and the other parts of the animal's bodies. These became commodities, and we learned to control those animals to increase the supply of commodities because commodities were money commodities were a currency, so that the people that that controlled uh, uh, herds of sheep and goats would live in the vicinity of a large city, say one of the big cities of ancient Sumer, Ur, say, along the uh, Dice and Euphrates rivers, those keepers of sheep and goats would have products, byproducts, wool, milk, cheese, horns, hides, things to sell to the people in the city, because keep in mind, the people in the city are settled now. They live in, like, on amounts to what look, looks like apartments, and they're all confined and congested and crowded. They don't go out and hunt and gather every day like their ancestors did. They live in a city of might be several thousand people. So to get food, they had to trade with the farmers that lived, you know, a mile or two around the city. And that would have been the keepers of sheep and goats. So there was a trade going back and forth between town dwellers, village dwellers, and the city dwellers, and the people who lived outside who farmed, who cultivated, and, uh, and raised uh, sheep and goats and cattle. So I became really fascinated with that process. And when I learned that it's most important to us to know about this, this is not just interest interesting information. This was the building blocks of our culture. I've uh, found anthropologists, uh, a couple of Japanese anthropologists, who have theorized that the uh, keeping of uh, domestic animals, uh, namely sheep and goats, and the control of their sex lives and their breeding to produce products and crops was the model for human slavery. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's a stretch. Well, they studied it firsthand in these places, and they found a lot of parallels between the keeping of uh, animals for profit, for products, and the keeping of human beings uh, as slaves to do the work. Now, how did they get slaves in the ancient world? If anybody's read the Bible lately, just read Deuteronomy a couple of times, and you'll see that slaves were... uh, people who were captured in warfare. Uh, One dominant tribe, in this case of uh, the Bible, it's the Hebrews, when they marched into the Promised Land, when Moses brought them over there from Egypt, what did they find in the Promised Land? They found Edomites, Moabites, uh, Midianites, Hittites. They found a whole lot of different tribes of people who lived there. And Deuteronomy tells us that they wiped them out was basically a genocide to clear out these places of competing tribes so that the Hebrews could settle the promised land and of course the Hebrews weren't unique here all the other tribes are doing the same thing as soon as the Hebrews settled down and thought they had control of an area so one of these other tribes would come and wipe them out so it was an ongoing process of Ethnic wars of ethnic groups cleansing areas for each other. And every time they would do that, they would take slaves, primarily uh, women. They they were afraid of able-bodied men because they could be a security threat. So very often they either killed the men, blinded them or castrated them to neutralize them. And they kept the women and the girls and they would use them as trade goods as well. So it's very interesting. If you look into it, it seems, it seems remote and irrelevant, but if you look into the beginnings of animal husbandry and agriculture, you see a lot of parallels between the methods that they used uh, and then the methods that came to be used in, in the human world, in slavery and castration and the, um, the uh, what, it, what it was the men slaves called I forgot they were castrated men they were common in uh, in the palaces in the ancient world um, what's the word for the men who were castrated
0: yeah I don't, I don't have it off the top of my head but yeah definitely this practice is familiar well, uh, I think the Romans did that as well Yeah,
1: history is full of references to uh, castrated men who were kept as uh, palace guards and keepers of the harem and to do like all well, the menial tasks around the uh, homes of uh, the palaces of the rulers and that practice castration like to neutralized males Is that right?
0: Eunuchs. yeah, okay
1: yeah. yeah, there's a part of the anthropology uh, that I read said that the idea uh, for eunuchs came from the castration, castration of sheep and goats because it would make them more docile They wouldn't be as wild because they wouldn't, like an attacked male animal uh, having a sex drive is horny and it tends to get into fights, tends to compete with others for females for breeding purposes. So the practice in animal husbandry was to neutralize the undesirable males so they wouldn't cause trouble. They would be easier to confine. They would be more docile. So they applied that to the the male male slaves, they created eunuchs. So there were a lot of parallels between some of the practices of early animal husbandry, some of the, the institutions that became so, so hideous to us today, uh, namely slavery and the segregation of women and girls and the trade, the first sex slavery, we've talked today about sex trafficking, the very first forms of that were in the prehistoric Middle East among all these um, competing uh, tribes of uh, people who who made a living herding sheep and goats and cattle. The Hebrews, I I hasten to add that they weren't the only ones doing this. So we don't want to get into the anti-Semitic thing of blaming Jews and Hebrews for all the trouble in the world. The Hebrews were just doing what everybody else was doing in that place at that time. The only difference being that the Hebrews had writers they wrote things down, which is why we have the Old Testament written accounts of the things that they did in their society at that time. And we're talking,
0: what, 1,000, 3,000 B.C. Have you went and studied um, the New World, the Americas, and that sort of thing, and how the domestication of animals and uh, agricultural society, how it differed or is a lot of the same? Have you looked into that at all or mainly, um, you know, looked into Asia and Europe?
1: There were no animals, uh, barnyard animals domesticated in the Americas with the possible exception of uh, camelids in the Andes region. That's yama, yamas and alpacas and That There's four of those species and they were domesticated by the Peruvians. In Middle America, that is Mexico, what they call Mesoamerica, um, dogs were domesticated, Uh, the turkey, the wild turkey became domesticated in some areas, and possibly the guinea pig, but uh, they weren't barnyard animals. They weren't like horses and cattle and sheep and goats that were used for uh, what we call traction, which is pulling plows, or for riding as in the horse and the oxen were ridden and they used to pull things. So, um, it was a different kind of domestication, but in North America, uh, the tribes of North America had no, no domestic animals, uh, with the exception of dogs. Uh, and there's a lot of theories about why did they not domesticate Buffalo and elk and gazelle and those animals. And, uh, There's a lot of crazy theories about it. One is that those animals weren't suitable for confinement, for being made tame. Uh, I think the best explanation is that the population was not crowded enough to force the move toward domestication. Uh, Native Americans still had plenty of space to resolve conflicts by basically breaking off contests over land. And hunting territories, they could move, they could leave and go somewhere else where it was relatively safe. So they didn't need domestic animals, domesticate animals and plants uh, for a food supply. Well, plants, they did have corn. Corn was domesticated in, in Mexico and it was moved up around the rim of the Gulf of Mexico and up the Mississippi River. So they did have domesticated. Corn and some say beans and squash were domesticated plants. They were just wild plants that they learned to cultivate, but they did not have domestic animals as in sheep, goats, cattle, horses. They were introduced. So they had a different culture. They retained their uh, ancient nomadic ways of moving about the environment in search of food uh, as hunter-gatherers, and the proper word is Foragers, because Foragers, yeah, I remember food talking about was,
0: that.
1: Yeah, food was much more plant-based than you know we brag about the mighty hunters. But the fact is, if you look at the actual diet, the menu that they had, it was still mostly plant-based. Yeah, I think and that's fascinating.
0: The, the seeds for our modern culture and modern society—how deep uh, they trace back. I read the, the People's History of the World. Uh, it was, uh, I think, you know, I read that in The People's History of the United States. That was the late, great uh, Howard Zinn. I think he's a great author, a big Zinn. fan of his work.
1: Classic um, book.
0: Yeah. But uh, I want to go to The People's History. He had mentioned in that book, I forget the name of the author, but Google it. It's a great book, The People's History of the World. He um, had talked about, like, primitive communism. You know, this is prehistory. Uh, Societies were much um, smaller. Um, Yeah, people were foragers. There was uh, much less hierarchy, uh, systems of domination, power, control over others.
1: There was was no state. They did not have a state. The rules and the governing was by families. Basically, a a human group was an extended family of uh, hunter-gatherer forager people. Uh, they were somewhat kin to everyone in their area. They did uh, breed out so they weren't inbred people. Uh, the tribe, you know, a mile or two away would have been more distant relatives, but uh, sometimes they had a common language and they shared with each other. Uh, sometimes they'd, they'd uh, coordinate on hunts, hunting and divide the, the results of the hunt. Um, yeah, but they lived in smaller groups. Typically, the, the the group that, that moved was uh, 20 to 30 people, all who were related to each other, three generations, mom, dad, grandparents, kids. And when the group got much larger than that, it would become unwieldy uh, in, in trying to move. Uh, you know, if you're always on the move, you can't have too many people and too much stuff. So that group typically would split up. and one faction would go off and find their own foraging territory. And I think this is the best explanation of how people, modern humans, homo sapiens, uh, spread out of Africa simply because of uh, population pressure. When When the buildup of people got too dense in one area, there would be conflicts over resources and conflicts over the foraging space. The groups would split off and they would go to another space where there was no people. And this is how human beings ended up settling all over Asia, all into Europe, into the polar regions, and into the deserts, because some group was always trying to find a space where they didn't have to fight and compete with another group. But yeah, you talk about primitive communism. Yeah, there were small groups, they shared everything. They didn't have a state. They didn't have, you know, the government as we know it. It was all pretty much a uh, uh,
0: family culture,
1: an extended family.
0: And this is something uh, Chomsky talks about. Pre-capitalism, there was no global south. There was no, you know, inequality. You didn't have rich countries and poor countries. Those were created. You know, at the time prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, the global south, you know, the Americas Brazil and South America, uh, you know, um, Mesoamerica, China even, you know, India. These were some of the richest countries and resources in the world, you know. But uh, over now, I guess, what, 500 or so years since, you know, Columbus and uh, in the Industrial Revolution, you know, th- these areas are now some of the poorest uh, places in the world. But prior to capitalism, I mean, these were rich Resource-friendly places. I think the economic, socio-political system, you know, created the the rich and, and the poor. You know, the haves and the have-nots. The rich industrial countries of the West and the poor countries of the global South. And that's kind of how we get our wealth. We rob and exploit Please. countries, uh, you know, to to maintain wealth. You know, I say we as you know essentially part of the the rich societies: America, Canada, uh, Western Europe, Japan. Uh, I guess Korea and Australia I think that pretty much sums up the world or at least the rich industrial um, world and then I like to you know talk about like slavery and stuff like that I'm an anarchist one of the rich traditions with anarchism is the term I like wage slavery so essentially you know we're right. wage slaves yeah. you know we're forced to work we're forced to rent ourselves to our masters whatever we can get on the market that's all we you know that's all yeah. we' worth right so uh, it's this capitalist system the socioeconomic political system, Um, that we've created that I think got it start with slavery. You know, now we have a system of wage slaves, people renting ourselves to masters, this form of hierarchy. And now we have these corporations, um, you know, we're itemized, you know, where there's so many different layers. We're so far disconnected people at the bottom of these corporations from people at the top, like, you know, the managers, the CEOs, the executives, that kind of stuff. And I think we see that too, not just in our um, corporations that, control basically everything, including our food system, but that's how, um, you know, we are disconnected from uh, the, the environment, the planet, the animals, you know, people like you had mentioned, you know, now we live in cities with populations above, you know, five and 10 million, when you're talking about some of the biggest cities in the world now, but we're disconnected from nature, we're disconnected from our animals, our food resources, now we have these globalized supply chains. But I, I love how you kind of linked it all together. I totally agree. Some of these similarities, this itemization, this disconnectedness, you know, between us and you know our our society, the planet, the animals that we eat. Um, you know, we've we've came a long way since you know whatever we're going to call primitive communism and and prehistory to where we are today. And uh, there's not there's a lot of bad stuff there, certainly. What we did to the planet. Um, I like to talk about like Dominion. You know, uh, that's like one of the um, themes in your book about, you know, the unnatural order and people, you know, we treat the planet like a trash can. These corporations um, pollute, they rob, they steal. Um, you know, the commons are being destroyed. And I think, you know, this planet belongs to all of us. Uh, and I don't think, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, that all we have to do is, you know, move to a different planet. Uh, Mars, you know, with these these weird ideas about to terraforming Mars. First off, this billionaire space race, if they ever end up terraforming Mars, they're not taking us with us. So I think we have one planet. We need to take care of it. Uh, and we're definitely um, thrashing it, and and the Biden administration is not doing much to um, you know. But we already talk about crisis.
1: I but- to interrupt you, but you're you're coming to a, a subject that we need to talk about: population. We're going to talk about climate crisis. Let's do it. And the collapse that's coming because yeah. of overpopulation and and overconsumption. Okay, we have too many people on the planet that are demanding too many goods. Uh, Everything that we live on is taken from the planet, whether it's through mining or deforestation or uh, 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 domination of agricultural land. We dominate the planet in order to keep feeding people and provide all of the stuff that we think we have to have. So it's a function of the numbers of people times... The numbers of demands that they have in consumption, the number of things that they buy, things that they eat, how many cars they have, how much clothing they have, that's our thats our toll on the planet. And uh, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the population numbers, but it's been estimated that on the eve of agriculture, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, before we became farmers and animal husbandry men of sheep and goats, The worldwide population was between 5 and 10 million people. That's the size of a large city. And that's dispersed over all the continents, including Australia. 5 to 10 million people dispersed all over the planet wouldn't cause as much trouble. There wouldn't be as much fighting and warfare as there is now. People would be dispersed. Once we started farming and raising animals and increasing the food supply, And our domination of the surface of the planet and its waters, populations started growing rapidly. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I've read that by the time history begins, that's 3,000 B.C., that population had risen to 90 million people worldwide. And by the time of uh, Christianity, 0 A.D., it had risen to, I don't know, I don't know. The number I got, I got this book
0: right here. I, I actually marked the page because that was my favorite. Read page. off those numbers. Yeah, 250 million at the eve of Christianity, and right. uh, at the let's see here, about a billion people uh, at, at around 1800 that was the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. Uh, and now, today, I think we have about 8 billion people uh, worldwide, billion. and it's predicted to be somewhere between 9 and 11 billion people by. 2100 when we should hopefully, um, you know,
1: so this is the, yeah, right there is the most substantial, devastating impact on the planet, sheer human numbers and their demands in terms of consumption, in terms of agricultural products, industrial uh, uh, inputs, uh, metals, energy. I mean, we, we really dominate the
0: planet. Um so let me just kind of interject here and then I'll let you finish us up. Uh this will be our last topic here. Um population control that definitely um is a hot button topic. I actually found out uh one of my uh tweets um I had mentioned uh uh on my last Twitter account, uh population control and if there are any good ideas. The best idea I had was educate. We gotta educate people, give them freedom and opportunity and op- and uh you know. Hopefully they will um, not overpopulate. Uh, I think usually, you know, uneducated people without a lot of choices tend to have more children. It seems like, um, at least that's kind of what I read. Um, but um, yeah, it's a hot button issue. People don't like this kind of stuff. People don't like, you know, population control. That's authoritarianism. So on the left, this gets a lot of pushback. So I try not to delve too deep in this overpopulation stuff. But how I would combat it is number one, education, and try to improve the. The opportunities for, for people and, um, you know, desperate people, uh, you know, if you educate them, give them opportunities, there's a chance, you know, maybe maybe we won't have so many, uh, you know, children, especially, um, you know, children that are in, in bad situations, dying of hunger and all the obvious, awful stuff that's going on in Gaza right now, but... Um, you know, population control, there's no doubt, you know, if there's only 5 million of us or 10 million of us, um, you know, there would be uh, this massive climate crisis going on right now. But the fact that there's 8 billion of us and counting, you know, I think we're pushing our planet to the brink. Um, you know, we have, we're at a tipping point. We have to make some changes, probably, um, you know, a World War II-like mobilization of resources to combat climate change. But we might be at or near the tipping point already or might have passed it, so I'm not so sure. We're certainly giving um, the, you know, the next generation, uh, they're inheriting a planet with insane amount of problems and climate crisis might be the most severe and dire of them all. Um, but again, yeah, population control, uh, this, this kind of stuff, one thing I will say is, is a good argument on the left that, you know, maybe we don't need population control. Maybe we just need to, um, you know, rein in the the 1%, you know, the, the fraction of the the 1%, the elites, you know, that talk about the 250 uh, private jets that went to the Super Bowl two weeks ago. You know, they're using a disproportionate amount of resources, you know, uh, with their homes and their private jets and their yachts and their energy consumption So, uh, that's one argument on the left is it's not a population problem. It's the the fact that the 1% and maybe a fraction of the 1% are running amok and using an insane amount of resources, much more than the average person is using. Um, but again, I'll, I'll leave you, you, you've been researching this stuff. You've been talking and and thinking about this stuff for a while now. I just wanted to, I just want to say that again, population control is a hot button topic on the left and I've gotten a lot of pushback when I've tried to talk about
1: it. The left is narrow-minded on some issues. They don't think. They keep repeating some dogma that somebody wrote about in The Nation 30 years ago. Population control is racist. You know, the white people are trying to... No. What's happening is, and there are studies on this, the more a society gets developed in women's rights, women's freedom, women's status, the birth rate, the growth rate goes down, and we can see examples of this in the organized world today. The countries that have the least growth rate are the developed countries with the most significant improvement in women's status and women's rights. When women have freedoms and economic choices and social status and have a position in the community, they have security and they don't want to be breeders. They don't want to have 15 or 20 children. This is another area where the growth of agriculture intersects with the cultural problems we have today, which is children, pregnant women, too many pregnancies, lack of pregnancy control, lack of birth control. If you you look at the essence of the agrarian attitude on marriage and man and woman, men who had wealth had several wives and several sex slaves. In their culture, they encouraged, in fact, they valued, they glorified having lots of children because it meant more wealth, it meant more labor, it meant a lot of things in a growing agrarian economy. It's gotten to the point where that value has become so extreme that now you have right-wing Christian nationalist groups and Elon Musk ranting and raving about a declining birth rate. They want women to become breeders again. They want women to get out of those jobs and those positions of leadership and involvement in in production, and they want them to stay home and be pregnant all the time. They want them to become what was the word for the handmaids and uh, there's a very strong overlap between the agrarian the oldest agrarian cultures and high birth rate, high fertility rate um because hunter gatherer people forager people. They could not afford to have large families because there was movement. They had to be mobile, and they would not tolerate a large family because it was too much trouble to pick up everything and keep moving. So they tended to space out the pregnancies. They had taboos on sex. They had ways to regulate the population growth of the forager unit, the band it would be called. But uh, that would be uh, humane birth control having smaller families not uh, uh, segregating women to be nothing but breeders for a capitalist society Elon Musk is afraid that we're not going to have enough consumers he wants us uh, women to be uh busy pregnant being pregnant producing more babies so we will have more consumers to buy products also he think thinks a capitalism workforce will to, die too he, he needs a workforce, workforce to to exploit as well you know he needs capitalism is based on an ever-growing population of people and consumers. It, it won't, it'll, it'll die out if it doesn't grow. It's like a shark. It has to keep moving or it dies. And that's why there's a big emphasis among right-wingers and capitalists and Christian nationalists to keep having women basically
0: breed more children and, and not you know, do anything else. Perpetual growth on a planet with finite resources is is idiotic, you know what I mean. I mean, this this model for economic growth and development is not sustainable, especially at the tipping point right now with this climate crisis. And uh, you know, we've seems, seemingly have already stretched our planet to the brink. Uh, we're in a mass Indeed. extinction crisis. We're in a mass extinction event. The last time was uh, an asteroid. This time, human beings are the asteroid. It's anthropogenic climate change and the uh, um, you know the destroying of the commons and the the, the wildlands and the um, you know, the breeding grounds for animals, uh, lack of biodiversity. We are a parasite, unfortunately. At least that's how we are uh, treating this planet. We are uh, using up all the resources, and uh, you know, at the end, I don't know what's going to be left of this planet. The planet will live uh, on without human beings. I just don't know how much longer we're going to be here or what kind of planet we're going to leave.
1: Let's simplify it a little bit. The yeah. environment. The planet, life on the planet, would be better off if we didn't have constantly increasing human numbers and demands on the planet. That, in other words, a shrinking population and consumption pattern. The key to that is women's rights, women's equality, women's status. The more women have equal status and equality and rights, power, and participation in society, they want to do everything but stay pregnant all the time and have more babies so that's what the left needs to consider there is a kind of humane um, acceptable kind of population control through natural mechanisms that were in place thousands and thousands of years ago when we were forager people when women had relatively more status in the forager group it wasn't like patriarchal where the men call the shots in fact if you know some of the Native American tribes, only the women had the vote on whether to go to war. I forget the names of the, uh, of the tribal people, uh, what nation it was, but it might've been in the Northeast. Uh, the, the women had the vote on whether they would go to war with the neighboring tribe. So That's how we get a shrinking population and shrinking demands on the planet. And I don't know what capitalism is going to do with that. That's their problem. I cannot imagine capitalism surviving with shrinking numbers and demands. I don't see how it would work.
0: Yeah, I like like a democratizing force, uh, an international democratizing force, uh, not a country ruled over by elites, the rich and powerful, the plutocracy or the oligarchy, uh, but working class politics. So that's what I think Democrats... Democratizing, democratizing force, uh, and I hopefully you know that crosses international borders. And one of the uh, number one objectives, or maybe the main objective, has to be I don't know, nuclear war. One and one uh, A would be the climate crisis. I think those are the two most ex- existential problems uh, we're facing today. Uh, let's talk about the future, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. What do you think about these existential crises that we're facing? Possibly nuclear world world war. Uh, Three, you know, in the proxy war going on in Ukraine right now, obviously the genocide going on in Gaza, but maybe more importantly, a a a topic or an issue that hits home to you is the climate crisis. What do you think about the future of humanity, Um, you know, nuclear annihilation, the climate crisis, the future of mankind? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? What do you you think about us and us us solving these big problems, uh, you know, facing humanity?
1: I have to say I'm pessimistic. Because, you know, as the patterns are, we see already,
0: uh, uh,
1: an unimaginable fraction of the population follows this Christian nationalist Trumpist right-wing crap, which is a Alice, Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole view of the world. So, I you know, I don't know what to do about that problem. Um, as far as nuclear war, I think it's possible. I think it's iffy. I think that the, that the real crisis... The collapse that we're staring at, which is much more certain than nuclear war is this climate collapse, whether it's uh, changes in the ocean currents, uh, temperatures out of control we're going to have increasingly hotter years, and that's going to bring not just discomfort it's going to bring population dislocation so when when the global south is uninhabitable, when you can't even grow crops there. People in the global south are going to have to go somewhere, and they're going to go into the temperate zones, and there's going to be social conflict. You think we have a migrant problem today where people complain about migration, about poor brown people taking over Europe and the United States and other places. You ain't seen nothing yet. As the climate crisis worsens, there's going to be waves like you wouldn't believe of people trying to get to safety, to a habitable climate, to some piece of food and clothing and shelter that's probably going to be fiercely fought over. Because those who have it in the Scandinavian countries, in Northern Europe, all around that part of the world, the capitalist world, the developed world, that's where the people are going to want to go. And it's already happening to some extent. If you follow kind of clashes that we're seeing in some parts of the world where there is a lot of migration from browner, more southern people into look what happened in Greece and the Hungary Hungary put up a fence as the refugees from there refugees from Syria try to get in that back door of Europe. So and, and of course we have Latin Americans. we're having a what we call a border crisis. basically what it is a lot of poor hungry people, trying to escape oppression and get to where there's food and a livable climate. So this, this is what I fear the most. We can deal with rising sea levels. We can deal with colder winters and hotter summers. But I think that the real, the real catastrophe is going to be the violence and the social conflicts that are practically going to be ungovernable. And guess what happens to
0: politics in a climate like that?
1: That's where right wing politics rises to the, the top. That's
0: where it thrives, no question about it. Fear politics.
1: Liberal democracies cannot withstand the kind of conflicts that will come from hordes and millions of brown people trying to get the places of affluent white people. So it's gonna be a fascist fascist governments deal with that. It's gonna be uh it's gonna be uh chaos socially because uh People will be fighting over space and resources and access to food, and medical care and schools and everything else. And the ones, the people who are native, who are indigenous, that's us, white folks, are going to try to fight them off. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to do that. But that's what's happening with migration now. It's a real going to be an intensifying um, conflict between those from the global south and those in, in the developed world because the climate crisis is going to produce those conditions
0: well speaking of and the indigenous that, the natives too you, you uh, we can't gloss over the genocide of the Native Americans that uh, was the result of the European colonization yeah, of the Americas too exactly so, uh, and those are usually the exactly. people that are at the at the forefront of uh, the climate crisis trying to stop the the Destruction of our environment. Usually, the the natives and the indigenous they are uh, right there at the forefront tackling these types uh, of issues. I you know, when uh, I said
1: when I said indigenous people, I didn't mean Native Americans. I meant Native Europeans and Anglo-Saxon American citizens. Yeah. They are not indigenous. They're they're living. They're residents. Right. I used the word indigenous wrong. Basically, yeah. the residents of the developed world are mostly white. There's going to be, uh, you know, a, a overpowering waves of people from unlivable, unlivable climates <clears> that are going to challenge the liberal democracies, and they're they're going to go right wing. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in Argentina. We're yep. seeing it in Mexico. We're seeing it in Europe, Eastern Europe. It's it's happening right under our noses. Yep,
0: it's right out of the fascist the right. These right wing. What was the latest
1: know? one? It was in El Salvador. They
0: elected a right-wing jerk in El Salvador.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's creeping to the right.
0: It is, yeah. The fascist problem of the climate crisis, the the fear, the fear politics, uh, the scapegoating. You know, people that look a little bit different using force violence to keep the population under control and throwing right. the superfluous, you know, the people that don't contribute to wealth production and protection into jails. That's why we have the mass incarceration problem here in the United States instead of a uh, social safety net. Um, instead of a welfare state, we have a, uh, a state of mass incarceration. I like to quote this one though. I think this goes back to, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, um, Pessimism of intellect, but optimism of will. I am optimistic. I believe in democracy. I believe in the people. I think we can accomplish these problems, I mean, there's really no other option, you know, so I hope we can work together, I hope a, globalis- uh, a, a, a mobilization, maybe the, the scale of World War II, uh, to help combat this climate crisis, I hope we can, can do something about it, but there's no question about it, uh, future generations, they're going to have their work cut out for them, uh, including you and I, too, I mean, we have to contribute to this as well, uh, but we got a long way to go, we got an uphill battle, so I want to remain optimistic, although the problems continue to mount, and it doesn't look great.
1: Yeah. Hey, Jim, yeah, it was I'm a pleasure.
0: To... I'll give you the last few minutes here. To talk about whatever you want, uh, where people can find you, any projects you're working on. I'd love to stay in touch and do it again. Uh, I learned so much. It was a great talk. You've obviously studied this stuff in great detail, so you've changed my perspective and gave me a lot of knowledge tonight, so I really do appreciate it. Go ahead. Say whatever you want. The stage is yours. Whatever. Whatever's on your mind. Go ahead.
1: Well, I'd, I'd recommend a book other than my own book in actual order. I don't know. How many people know a book by a writer named David Wallace Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth? It's a a really depressing book, but he really gives the science of what's going to happen as climate change progresses, gets worse, as it gets hotter. Um, Basically, it's about vast stretches of the planet will be even more uninhabitable than they are now. That, you know, the equatorial zones across northern Africa, that part of the world, it won't be able to grow crops. There won't be enough water. Um, populations won't be able to live there. So, um, yeah, there won't be enough air conditioning. There won't be enough energy to air condition those parts of, of the world. So it's just going to be and, – and he gives a, a, a scenario of degree by degree of warming if it gets – it's one degree hotter, this is going to happen. If it gets two degrees hotter, this is going to happen. Three degrees and so on. It sort of describes the climatic changes that we're going to see as it gets progressively hotter. And, uh, you know, of course, we can't forget what happens on the ocean, because ocean currents determine a lot of weather patterns. <clears throat> if the, uh, the Gulf Stream were to change, and it looks like it might, because of the changes in salinity and temperature, that would affect uh, uh, the movement of um, hydrological systems that is moisture uh, the ra- rainforest might turn into a desert uh, it you know Canada might turn into a, a rainforest. I mean we don 't know it's uh, it's crazy what can happen to the planet as um, some of these systems the uh, the jet stream the polar vortex the ocean currents um, they can all we try to predict this, but we're going to, it's, it's happening now. It's, we're just on the, the, the front edge of a lot of these climatic changes, and they're just going to get worse because we don't show any signs as a, as a collective people, whether we're talking Americans or Europeans or Russians or Chinese, we're not making a lot of progress in reducing the carbon dumping and uh, the temperature increasing whereas we're not making
0: any we're not making any gains on that project and so there's reason to be pessimistic it doesn't seem to matter who's in the white house too i think biden actually increased drilling permits more than trump too so we're not getting much help from either political party unfortunately it seems like we're on the own, doesn't it
1: well somebody i forget where i read it but somebody did a, a piece of an article talking about the kinds of changes that would be necessary Changes in consumption patterns, industrial production, agriculture, animal agriculture. So, drastic changes that would be needed, like soon, like now, if we were to reverse this, uh, this trend toward a hotter planet. And uh, nobody's willing to make those changes. Animal agriculture is one of the biggest contributors. I think it's second only to fossil fuels. And its contribution to carbon in the atmosphere and climate change. And how many people are going to be willing to give up their hamburgers and their milk and their cheese and their dairy? Because animal agriculture really has to go, irrespective of animal rights. I mean, don't even get into the cruelty to animals, leave that aside for a minute. Just what animal ag is doing to our planet in its substantial contribution. Climate change has to be recognized and addressed, and few people are willing to do that. That's why I'm pessimistic. I'm pessimistic that people's critical thinking skills to see the problem, okay, to understand what's happening, to take it in mentally and emotionally and do something about it, which is in practical action i'm pessimistic about both of those things pessimistic about pessimistic about people's ability to critically think about reality and to see what's happening under their noses and then to have the character and the strength to do something about that that's why i'm pessimistic i think maybe 5 10 15% of the population has the abilities to do that and the rest they'll have to show me i don't think they're up to
0: the job all right, my friend, mincing no words, pulling no punches. I really appreciate it. You're hard-hitting. You're straight to the point. It was a great discussion. Uh, I appreciate it. Let's stay in touch, and I'd love to do it again sometime. Have a great night.
1: Jim Mason. Thank you for the program. I appreciate it. Go All right. on.
0: Adios. So long. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, author, and animal activist, Jim Mason, for a great discussion on animal rights, politics, and the climate crisis. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.